The Global Football Show. Hosted by Phil Brown and Callum McFadden. A co-BTP Football CFB production. A show that covers all the breaking news and talking points in football happening across the globe. The Global Football Show. Whispers in the shadows. Crowd blessing voices. Hating waiting. Hey boy, they shout. Have you got any money? And I say, I'm gonna need some money and I take a white curry. I'm on the way home to my wife. She's been lighting up the cutlery and now she's expecting me. I lost in her glasses and pulling out the coke. I'm down in a Tuesday shirt up in the Hello and welcome to the Global Football Show with Phil Brown and myself, Callum McFadden. Tonight we are going to be joined by Adrian Bennington, who was the Head of Communications at the English FA for many years. He's going to talk to us about Project Restart in the Premier League and he's going to talk about some of the other major issues in football. And then later on in the show, we're also going to be joined by Roger Mitchell. Roger used to be the head of the SPL in Scotland. However, he has a very interesting career now. He leads his own artificial intelligence company that are going to be putting cameras into every single ground in Scotland and potentially some in England to ensure that streaming can be up and running for the behind-closed-door football matches. And he's also done a lot of research into the increased injury risk for players returning from injury as part of this project restart as well. Phil, how are you? Doing good, man. How are you? Nice. Uh, unfortunately, recording this show off the backdrop, of course, I'm out here in Los Angeles. Um, what is a very, very dark and scary time in, in America at the moment. Um, football's always been a positive distraction. But it seems like the last six months we've just been recording shows against the backdrop of darkness and tragedy. And um, what's going on out here right now is very, very concerning. It is, it's, a, it's very concerning. Um, I'm sure you've seen yesterday, Jaden Sancho, um, yeah. Marcus Turam, Liverpool squad today paying tribute to... Mm-hmm. To George Floyd, um, obviously it's a very sad situation that's going on in the US at the moment and my thoughts are, are obviously with everyone in America, um, obviously equality is very important and also want to just say that my thoughts are with you and your family, Martin and your family because you, based in based in America, I can imagine at the moment your, your life's been turned upside down for you in more ways than one. Uh, yeah, I mean, but... Uh, when you talk about the victims and all of this, you know, uh, the fact that our life has been turned upside down is irrelevant, mate. Unfortunately, the real victims, yeah. you know, are the people that have to deal with this on a daily basis. And um, it's just so sad as a, as a species. I just wish we'd all learn to live and accept each other and stop manufacturing differences. And, you know, something as silly. I was saying this on, on my United show. My six-year-old was asking me last night, why people on TV are fighting. And uh, I tried to explain it to him and he just kept looking at me like I was crazy. Like, you mean that people are fighting over a skin pigmentation? Which course, he didn't say skin pigmentation, but skin color. And it's just, when you, when you, when you break it down to a six-year-old, you realize how absolutely how utter madness it all is. And uh, it's just incredibly tragic. It is incredibly tragic. And you and I are both sensible enough and honest enough to admit that in times like this, football does and is irrelevant. However, mm-hmm. this is the Global Football Show and uh, we commit to bringing everyone this on a Monday and we will record as planned today, but please don't think in any way we're undermining the current situation in the US and worldwide because, as I say, our thoughts and, and prayers are with the families, but we need to go further than just thoughts and prayers and we need action and that's mm-hmm. something that hopefully can be delivered, not just in the US, but but globally as well. I'm based in the UK and, and we have our own issues here. They might not be as um, publicised as they are in the US at the moment, but trust me, there's an underbelly in the UK that, that needs to be dealt with and, and I hope it's dealt with as a matter of urgency because everyone should be equal in 2020. It's, it's, it's something that I'm passionate about and I know you are as well. well this cancer uh, and calm that exists, existed throughout society from day one it's resulted in so many different people, whether it's uh, black, Jewish, whatever, um, who have suffered because of ignorance, uh, which all racism is predicated on ignorance, and the idea that someone's superior than another individual, um, you know, the sooner we eradicate that cancer from our society and 
do everything we can to make sure all human beings are treated equal and absolutely nobody receives any type of uh, treatment that is not equal to anyone else because of something other than a birth and accident, which is just a disgrace. I mean, it's very difficult to even talk about this to get it right because obviously we're two white guys and exactly we have no idea what it's like to experience racism, none whatsoever. No, um, but certainly intellectually we can understand it and um, I, it's just utterly deplorable and I just, it is absolutely heartbreaking to me to think that in this day and age in 2020, um, in, in this case, African-American parents are having to have different discussions with their children on occasion. Um, I, I, I don't know how, I, I, I'm a parent, I don't know how you explain that to a child, I, do, I have no idea and it's utterly reprehensible that it exists in any capacity. Delighted to say that we are joined by Adrian Bevington, who was the Head of Communications at the English FA. Um, a range of expertise in football from the national team and, and, and several clubs in, in England as well. Adrian, thanks for joining us. Hi there. Delighted to be on the show. Thank you, man. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Project Restart, Adrian, just around the corner here. Uh, Premier League, of course, have to meet some testing criteria to make sure it starts. The last round of testing, zero positive tests. Very, very encouraging. Looks like we're on course to get football back. It does, and I think it's really important. You know, I think it will give everybody a lift. And looking at what's gone on in Germany, which we may want to talk a bit more about, but I think it's given a lot more confidence to people that um, football can get moving again in England. Uh, and, and I really think it's important for um, financially for the clubs uh, to get moving because of the commercial contracts that are in place, but also... Beyond that, um, you know, the integrity of the game so the league can be concluded properly. Um, and the most important element of all is that it's going to be done in a safe environment by the looks of things from the way that the, the testing and the quarantine process have been put in place to date. Something I'm interested to ask you about, I spoke to Mark Warburton today, the QPR manager. He's been very forthright that He's unhappy because although he wants football to return um, in the EFL, they've been given a start date potentially of June the 20th, which he does not think the EFL are ready for. He, can, he admits the Premier League are ready. They're back to full contact training if they wish. But he said the EFL clubs are not prepared and this decision has been made, in his opinion, rather quickly. Yeah, I saw the comments from uh, Lee Hughes, the chief executive of Queen's Park Rangers, who said he was speaking on behalf of Mark and also of Les Ferdinand, and the, uh, the director of football. Look, I've not been privy to the exact flow of communication between the clubs and the EFL executive directly. Um, there's always going to be uh, people who disagree with the time frame of this. You know, we've seen that. You can look at division to division in England, where there is, you know, the Premier League's set to start on one day, the EFL another day. We're still waiting to find out exactly what's happening with um, League One. I think there will always be uh, discussion as to whether we've got enough time with the contact training to prepare the players so they're going to be um, full, as fully fit and safe as possible to kick off for full match action. But I think at some point something has to give somewhere if you're going to get flowing. And I, I totally respect Mark Warburton for his points. Mark's a very constructive man who I've got a great deal of respect for. But I think that they try and get moving. It's imperative to get moving and they need to get it finished by the end of July, I believe. And that's probably the main driver for this. Yeah, I mean, whatever the permutation, there is no perfect scenario to resume. Just compromise has to be made somewhere. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of competing interests. We've seen it in other leagues where there's decisions being made that has resulted in lawsuits. Is it possible that some clubs who won't agree with Project Restart could possibly file lawsuits. Is that is that a realistic possibility? Of course, it's a it's a possibility, Phil. But I think it's a greater possibility if they don't restart. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah. because yeah. for me, all the way through this, the big thing in my mind's continue to be: if they don't finish, can you imagine being relegated without actually kicking the ball yeah. when there's still a realistic? Potential, particularly you look at the bottom of the Premier League and the bottom of the Championship, mm -hmm. where there are a number of clubs that could still be relegated. So I think taking it as far as you can to conclude the season on the pitch will uh, hopefully reduce any potential scenarios of litigation. Because, uh, you know, you've, you, you use the word yourself there, compromise. 
and I, I've been really clear on this, not just talking about England, talking about Scotland in detail myself. Somewhere in all of this, people have got to sit around the table, whether it be virtually or however, and there has to be some concessions made to get to a resolution. We're not in a perfect set of circumstances here. The, you know, Football is secondary to what's going on in the world here on so many levels at the moment. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, from a business perspective, there is a real need commercially to get these leagues concluded. Yeah. And there, therefore, is there's a real need from an integrity point of view to get the leagues concluded wherever possible to. How useful do you think it's going to be for the Premier League to be able to look across to the Bundesliga and potentially, obviously, be in contact with their German counterparts and understand what's worked well for them, maybe what's not, what, not worked as well in terms of ensuring that the, the return to action is as smooth as possible given the unprecedented situation? I think they'll have been following it incredibly closely. I'm sure there has been dialogue going on whether that be through the league to league or whether that be through individual club people that know one another. You know, we've got, for example, you know, one example, Jurgen Klopp with David Wagner, uh, Liverpool to Schalke. There's undoubtedly going to have been communication going on between those two great friends. Um, it's been a real help, I would suggest, to English football to see what's happened over in, in Germany. And I've watched, you know, a significant amount of the games myself on TV and we know as well that the, the, you know, I think it's been £4 million has been spent on testing for yeah. the Premier League. You know, the Premier League is an incredibly well-run fo football, football league. Um, and so I, I fully understand the debate that's gone on with the players who some of them have really expressed, you know, very loudly their, their upset and unhappiness about the return. Um, but I think that the league themselves have tried to do everything they can with the clubs to minimise risk for those players. And it's back to the same point again. You know, if you want to get it concluded, and look, if they don't conclude, the risk is £1.1 billion sterling not to conclude, um, I believe, is what Richard Masters, the Premier League chief executive, said, of which around £760 million sterling of that is TV rights. I believe there's somewhere in the region of £340 million pounds, um, would, would have to be uh, not paid out because they're playing behind closed doors, but I'm sure that's a conversation that's also going on anyway. But those numbers alone, as rich as the Premier League is, it, it shows the importance of trying to get these games concluded when you're still paying wages and you're not getting any footfall through your door. I know there's people out there that argue that the financial side shouldn't be a consideration when there's a, the human side of this, but it's not irrelevant. It has to be considered because there's a lot of people in football that don't make millions of pounds. There's lots of people inside football clubs that are making standard living, a standard wage. And if you go down into the lower leagues, championship, league one, league two, no resumption of football means financial Armageddon. For them, they're done. Um, football as we know it won't return in the way that we see it today. I've spoken to club owners at that level and told me this. So with that in mind, um, I, I believe that we have to consider the financial side of this. It's very real. Uh, but is there going to be, do you think, support from the governing bodies, perhaps from the FA or, the, or uh, other, other people within football that's going to give the lower league clubs some financial support in a, in a, in a way that wasn't before and to make sure these clubs stay solvent? Well, it's got to be looked seriously at, Phil. Whether it will happen or not, I, I, I don't know is the answer, but you're correct. It's impossible for me to, to see how clubs outside of the Premier League, particularly League One and League Two, many of those historical clubs that are core parts of, of communities up and down the country, how they can possibly exist when they don't have anybody going through the door for games, but also going through the doors during the week yeah. um, for events and corporate hospitality, you know, where is their income going to come from? Now, the Premier League themselves, you know, the clubs there, they've got massive outgoings. So even though they've got huge in in incoming yeah. revenue, the outgoings are huge as well. So it's not as easy just to say they can click their fingers and donate money through the pyramid. Mm -hmm. But they bring in over three years, £9.2 billion for TV rights alone. Now, can some of that therefore be top spliced uh, in addition to the significant amount that's already paid out through solidarity payments, um, 
through the, the Premier League also contributes massively into the Football Foundation, which is the combination of the um, the FA and also uh, the DCMS, the government as well. So they already do pay a lot of money out, but this is protecting the game as a whole. The FA have got their own challenges. You know, they 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 are budgeting to lose seventy five million pounds, I think it is, year on year for up to the next four years. The FA in England is one of the richest national associations in global football. They, they turn over over, over 150, uh, 450 million sterling, I think it was, at their last set of accounts, and they reinvest over 160 million pounds back into football right the way through the game. There's not many FAs, if any, that actually do that. But if they're losing, budgeting to lose 75 or reduce 75 million pounds of their budget, they brought in somewhere in the region of 63 million pounds in 1819 into Wembley but if Wembley's not being used to its full um, capacity yeah. as a venue you know they've got financial challenges as well and I, I'm speaking now I'm someone who is a I'm an independent director of a county FA a regional FA mm-hmm. so I know the challenges that are being faced yeah. at grassroots football there has to be something happen here now whether that be a combination of um, Premier League with the FA with government but has the government really got the money at the moment to yeah. support football when all the other challenges have been placed? If that is the case, it's going to have to be centrally managed by an independent organisation because you know you, the, the, the flow of that money, once it becomes yeah. use of public money, exactly. has to be accounted for every cough and spit. Otherwise, that, there's no way that can take place. But I do think there is a, there is a logic to saying we've got to try and protect... Um, anything we can do to protect those clubs because, you know, I've seen it firsthand myself. Look, I grew up in Middlesbrough in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Middlesbrough nearly nearly went to the wall yeah, in 1986. One of the first sort of bigger clubs to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. If you take a football club out of its heart, heartland, yep. you know, the damage you do to the res- residual damage you do to the community is massive. Yep. So we have to try and protect that if we can do so. Where there's a way, the final part of that is, it could be, and this may not be palatable to a lot of people, but it could be that some of these um, you know, private equity companies, venture capitalist firms, they are looking closely at the moment to investment into sport. That may be another area where we see mm-hmm. either uh, buyouts or maybe, as it's been suggested in Scotland at the moment, um, significant um, gestures from wealthy individuals. Mm. That's a very interesting point. And in, before we talk a wee bit more about the finances, I want to ask you about the importance of communication and viewership in this. And the reason I want to mention that is because this this time for the Bundesliga has been incredible in terms of exposure. There are more eyes in the Bundesliga now than arguably there ever would be because it's the, it's the only show in town when it comes to elite football. One of the aspects of the Premier League's return that interests me greatly is the fact that the BBC are going to have, albeit a limited number, but still a number of games that will be on terrestrial television. The first games in the history of the Premier League to be shown free to air on terrestrial television. Do you think this could change the landscape of broadcasting for the Premier League in the sense that we know Amazon are coming in, we know we've got Sky and BT, but with the BBC involvement, it could introduce the Premier League to an even greater audience because if you look at the FA Cup figures, you have averaging six, seven million people watching FA Cup games with big clubs. So how useful could that be for the Premier League going forward? Well, there's a lot, of, there's a lot to that question, Callum. It's a very good point. Um, look, I know from working within the English FA for as long as I did that terrestrial television drives huge numbers in comparison to paid TV. You know, England matches... FA Cup ties, FA Cup finals. You know, they always dominated the ratings year on year. Um, I think it's a really sensible move and the right move to introduce terrestrial TV free to air, uh, particularly this moment, because that hopefully will entice more viewers down the line. But beyond that, this is not something that's new insofar as the debate about how we're going to consume our broadcast of football in the years to come. You know, the traditional methods of pay TV as we have become accustomed to is changing anyway. We saw the, in, the, we, the input of Amazon over the festive period where they had the Boxing Day calendar sewn up for themselves um, and, and the coverage was excellent. Then you look at the, 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 the 
the way that young people consume their, their, their sport, consume other elements of broadcast. You know, are they going to be buying subscriptions the way that we've bought them? Unlikely. And that's why companies like Netflix and the way that they subscri use subscription services, I've heard it discussed, it may be Netflix, it may not be Netflix, but there's a massive opportunity for somebody there to produce a, a much cheaper subscription where you can follow your teams. Not everybody wants to watch all of these mm -hmm. games all the time. Yeah. You know, and this is the time now for football and other sports for real creativity. If, 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 if they don't seize this moment for being using the opportunity to be as creative as possible, it's a missed chance. You know, anything should be on the table now. Any way in which we can make football, fan engagement, more accessible than ever before, um, more creative, more innovative than ever before. This is what, this is what people are looking for. The access that we've seen in, the, in North America, and Phil, you'll be well across this more than, mm -hmm. more than myself, for generations, and whether that be access around live games insofar as the locker room access that everyone yeah. always looks to, but also the way in which they've used documentaries, which we're seeing more of in the UK now, the way they use archives, some of the, 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 you know, the, the, the movies that they show, they're absolutely fantastic from the NFL, from the NBA, and I just think it's, what can we do more now, particularly while we've got the stadiums that are empty over the coming months, this is a great opportunity that's got to be embraced. One of the reasons why the NBC NBC Sports got the Premier League out here, they actually paid less for the, the, the acquisition of Premier League rights, but because they felt, look, we're going to tell the story around these football clubs. It's not enough just to put the game on. We're going to put on support content that tells a story about these football clubs because one of the things Americans do really, really well is they tell a story, they market exceptionally well around, they sell nostalgia, they sell history, they do a brilliant job of uh, uh, of telling the whole story around the club and why you should support them and their culture and their history. And, and NBC have done an exceptional job with that by really tapping into the things like old, uh, old games um, and doing each team has had a two-hour documentary on them about what, what relevance they have in the Premier League and all that. But one of the things is if you get an a la carte menu, inevitably that's going to benefit the big clubs. So how does that affect collective bargaining? Because if you've got guys around the world, if you say to someone, okay, instead of paying $20 a month or £20 a month for a package, you pick $2.99 for this game, $2.99 for this game, inevitably the big clubs will be the winners, the small clubs will be the losers. What does that do to collective bargaining? Well, it's a really good point. And the collective bargaining has been the strength of the Premier League um, over its duration. And obviously Richard Scudamore during his long tenure he fought very hard to protect that. You know, it would appear there's a lot of pressure on the collective deals. I think there were some concessions made at the most recent overseas deals where it wasn't quite as equal, perhaps, as it had been previously. So there's always going to be pressure from the big mm -hmm. clubs in that regard. But I think this is back to, you know, realism around the table. And look, I'm not privy to all the detail on this, accepted. But the strength of the Premier League is the competitive nature of it. Mm -hmm. And I know that people will immediately say, well... Yeah, but the big clubs are always going to win the Premier League. Yes, in, in essence, they probably will. But they always have in the main, even before the Premier mm -hmm. League. But the beauty of the Premier League is the fact that the, the clubs that are in the mid-table or even down the bottom can always pull out a win against the big teams. It's, it's not as straightforward as some other leagues where you see the same pattern of results year on year. So I think if they, they want to protect the... the you know, the, the beauty of the Premier League being what they describe as the best league in the world. It's certainly the most exciting league in the world as far as competitiveness and results. They might have to look at how they might sacrifice some of the money that they feel they could generate for themselves to be split more equally across yeah. them. But just on that, I can't forget to ask a quick follow-up. One of the arguments that big clubs are using to smaller clubs, I suppose, is, look, in a collective bargaining agreement, maybe you get $100 million. But with this streaming rates... If we give you 30% of, say, uh, where people buy a Man United versus Norwich game, you will still end up with net, uh, a much greater net than what you would on a collective bargain agreement. There's just going to be bigger disparity. But maybe through streaming, you get, you know, you end up with 150 million rather than 100 million because more people buy the game. Uh, but obviously, the disparity is going to be greater. So I think that's the argument they're using to other clubs is you'll end up with more money. But yes, there's going to be greater disparity between 
the top teams will still end up with a lot of money. Sorry, Cam, go ahead. <clears throat> and and the, the other thing I wanted to, to talk to you about, Adrian, um, I know you've got a passion for Scottish football as well as the Premier League. You talked about the opportunity for a single investor. It looks like, as it's been reported in Scotland, making a donation of some sort. Obviously, the, the, the T's and C's need to be really assessed before we know the full details. Is that something that you hinted at earlier that could happen for the EFL? Well, it's certainly a possibility, isn't it? I mean, look, at, we, we, we know, I read a piece, um, I think it was in Sports Pro Media, um, of which, you know, there was discussions, uh, well, suggestions that there are a number of these individuals or certainly companies that are hovering around the edges, probably looking more, more realistically at clubs rather than leagues at the moment, I would say. I mean, I think that the situation in in um, in Scotland is one of one individual from Scotland who's looking to make a donation to protect the game from what I've read at face value. We've seen companies like CVC, obviously with Premier League Rugby. We, you know, there's the speculation that they're looking at Serie A uh, to, 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 to invest heavily in that. And if they're looking at Serie A, well, they're clearly... You know, there's, there's nothing to stop them looking then, you know, at any of the leagues anywhere in the world, quite frankly. So, you know, while I'm not aware of anyone specifically looking at EFL at the moment, um, we know that the EFL is, what is it, the fourth or fifth biggest watched league in the world, TV-wise? And if that's the Worth case, belief, yeah. it's, gonna, it's therefore going to be attractive um, to, to people with outside investment, particularly, look, if we don't resolve the situation, getting back to your point, Phil, about you know the situation financially that clubs find themselves in, if that isn't resolved, you know they're going to be they're going to be there to be picked off right. at a low level purchase price. Mm-hmm. That's the harsh reality. People don't want to hear that, but that's the harsh reality of, of business. Course. One of the things that, um, when we're looking at casualties here, uh, the women's game. Um, I would be concerned for that. Are we in a situation where they could also bear the brunt of this? Well, I think we're already seeing that there's been elements of the women's game, you know, closed down very quickly. You know, what's happening next? I think it's really, really important. The women's game in Europe has been one of the most successful elements of football over the past decade. The investment that I've seen firsthand in England has been spectacular yeah. and the results have been spectacular on the back of that. Yeah. And I think we have an obligation, um, you know, whether, you know, it's interesting. We've got three, three men debating yeah. across <laughs> the studio at the moment, yeah. but I think it's, you know, I feel personally obligated wherever I've worked that we, that we have to do everything we can to grow the game. And I think, yep. I, I, I think as well from a commercial viewpoint that if I was a really big blue chip commercial sponsor at the moment looking to invest into football, but particularly looking to invest into a club, I'd be turning around and saying, okay, well, what are you doing with your women's team? Mm-hmm. So untapped. Yeah. Any, anything, that I, anything with inventory, I'd want to see the packing to involve the male players mm-hmm. and the female players. And within reason as much equality as possible. Yes. I'm appreciating that the, the finances in the women's game are just nothing um, in Europe at the moment in comparison sure. to, to the men's game, but we've got to continue growing that because you know it would undermine all the work, but more importantly, it's fundamentally the right thing to do to keep growing it. Absolutely, and we're very conscious of your time, Adrian. The last thing I'd like to ask you on behalf of Phil and I is the Bundesliga. It's been back... Now, I know you're a massive fan of the Bundesliga. You've visited many clubs over the years. Who have been your favourite players to watch since the, since the league resumed? Well, the easiest one, obviously, you'd pick up on um, Sancho's performance oh. yesterday. You know, I mean, that was a second half in particular was, was, was absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also, uh, to be fair, I've enjoyed a lot of the different players. You know, I mean, there's so many of the young players coming through in the Bundesliga at the moment. You know, watching yeah. Leverkusen's been a real treat. Yeah. Um, but even even looking at the way that uh, Paderborn attacked Dortmund in the first half yesterday, I look at um, Alfonso Davis with Bayern Munich. Yeah. He's been particularly spectacular. Um, they really do have a good production line of players 
coming out of that league at the moment. They're not necessarily all all German, ironically. There's a good mixture of nationalities there, which is very interesting. Um, I've always had a liking for watching Bayern Munich. I love watching. I love watching Thomas Muller for the enthusiasm yeah. that he shows yeah. on the pitch. Lewandowski is for me the best um, orthodox striker in world football at this particular moment. But it's easy to talk about Bayern Munich because obviously everybody watches Bayern sure. um, and knows them well. But you know, I think I think it's as as a league that there's been a lot of individual good performances. Wolfsburg, when they've played some of their games away from home, yeah. have been you know a revelation. But then you look at the impact that um, we've seen with Herder Berlin. No, they've been great to watch. I agree. And I'm Googling here at a friend. It's Bruno Labadia is the uh, manager here. So thank God. Uh, thank God for Google. Now for the first time, it's bailed me out. But uh, Adrian, this is the first time I've had an opportunity to speak to you. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Uh, we're really, really grateful for your time. I'd love to get you back sometime. And uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's real pleasure to speak to you both. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Callum. Really enjoyed it. And uh, keep, keep the great work going. Thanks, mate to be joined by Roger Mitchell. Many in the UK will know Roger as the, the former head of the SPL in Scotland, but doing some great work um, now with his own podcast, and he's doing incredible work on, on the data analytics of football. And I'm delighted you're on, Roger, because I can finally say you're the first person to come on who lives in a more glamorous place than Phil. You're in Lake Como. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure to come on. And, and um, I've been advise, an, an admirer of... Uh, beyond the pitch for a long time, for many years. Uh, and it's actually really good for me to, to get exposure to uh, your audience. That's the way I look at it. So thank you very much. Genuinely honoured. Go ahead, Carl. My first, pleasure. The first question I've got for you, Roger, um, you're part of the platform Zone 7, and you've been doing some interesting, very interesting research recently that said that basically there is a 25% increase in risk of injury when football returns. Could you just explain how that research was conducted and, and, and how the, the statistics were gathered? Well, uh, Zone 7 is a, an AI company out of um, Tel Aviv, like so many of great sport tech companies these days. Um, I've done a lot of work in, in Israel, both on the sport tech side and also advising the league out there. So... I ran into them and uh, became an investor in the company. And I've been working quite a lot uh, in um, the business development, certainly in, in Europe with, with all the clubs, not just in football, but across all sports. What, what Zone 7 does really is it's not new hardware. It's not Catapult. It's not GPS. Um, it's not, um, I think, management systems. We work with all of these as a layer above above them where we take all that data and we look for correlations and connections, a little bit looking for the breadcrumbs to um, find those and then say, in these circumstances, in, 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 a, in a high probability, that particular player is going to get injured, soft tissue injury. And, and, and we're picking up three quarters of um, injuries that way. We've been doing it for a couple of years, two or three years now with Qaddafi in Spain, and, and they've got one of the oldest squads, one of the smallest squads, and their performance is there for everybody to see. Uh, we've got a couple of other big teams in, in, in Spain, two Champions League teams in, in Italy. Uh, we've just started with the Bundesliga. And, and you're referring to this, uh, Callum. Uh, our research obviously goes into uh, analysis of what happens in different scenarios of... Um, pre-season if you will it would be normally called be pre-season but for this time it's you know a quick restart of of, of the training program and and <laughs> it just shows as as the article uh, points out that we um we're at great risk teams are at great risk if you've noticed in the bundesliga there's been a couple of injuries um a couple of them we picked up you know um, we're going into clubs now um to you know new new clients because the word's spreading quite a lot. We're going into clubs and we're saying, let us do a retrospective analysis of your last two years. You give us the data and we will come back and tell you what we would have flagged up as a potential injury. We're getting three out of four, you know, and wow. um, it's, it's quite dramatic. And, 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 you know, in the context of the way football is going to go now, which is 
much more about value for money. It's saving uh, saving costs. It's being tighter with a squad. Being uh, hoping to to have the players on the field more often. I, I think it is the definitive sports tech um, product for the next two or three years. And uh, we're just blown away with the reaction. And the BBC Sport picked it up, that article you've got. The Guardian had it yesterday. It's just one of these hot things that happens when you're involved with a, with a startup that it, it can just really take off. And, and we're right in the middle of that now, Callum. One of the unknowns about injuries, of course, all clubs want to get ahead of this. They want to be predictive of soft tissue injuries, but there's so many variables that goes into how someone picks up a soft tissue injury. Are you? Do you publish what your variables are? Or do you keep that private? Um, I would imagine there's a, an absolute enormous amount that goes into trying to predict this. Well, it's a good question. Um, and everybody says, do we need to have this or do we need to have that? Well, the fact is, no. If, if a club has got multiple sources of data... GPS, gym work, blood work, even sleep, um, uh, biometrics. Mm. That just makes our predictive analysis even sharper. If we've only got one of them, we're still doing really well. But if it's a sophisticated club that can throw everything at us, like I've just said, we can get you know very, very accurate. So we don't replace anybody. We certainly don't replace the human because it is for the human sports scientist to interpret this uh, like um, Javier does at Gaddafi. You know, we, we give him the output and he still has to apply his uh, IQ and more importantly, his EQ with his head coach to, to take a view on, on how they're going to analyze that data. So it's not, um, it's not replacing anybody and it's not replacing any kit just now. It's just classic deep, deep learning, which is, you know, as I say before, correlations and connections to give you a, a, a vision of the future, Phil. In terms of sports tech, Roger, just you talked about the fact there's, there's been a real boom and you, you mentioned Tel Aviv and Israel as, as, as real driving forces behind that. And what, one of the things that interests me is the fact that so much of what was previously subjective can now be objective. Yeah, um, technology, you know, it's one of the things I've done since I've left, you know, working with a rights holder is that I invest quite a bit in early stage stuff. But I really like to look at disruptive stuff, you know, uh, things that are going to change what are clear issues and problems that need to be solved. Too many injuries is an obvious one. That's an easy one. With the company, I think, you know, that... Um, you're maybe alluding to is Pixelot, which is again AI. It's um, it's uh, camera production, broadcast production without the human, where um, based on miss missile tracking technology, you, you, they can follow the players and the ball without a human operator uh, to to cover um, games. I would say in the third, fourth tier downwards. Uh, obviously, it's not going to replace 24 camera coverage of Man United Liverpool, but you know in America. Um, you, you, you've got um, you've got a whole lot of college sports and everything like that, and we're already in there um, quite significantly with Pixelot. I've taken them into the Scottish uh, Premier League now. Uh, we'll, we'll be covering your team next year, Morton, with uh, Pixelot. So it's it's just you know it's my personality. I like I'm curious about things like that, and 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 the way that tech is going to affect uh, sport going forward, and and I mean the next three or four years now is going to be dramatic. Americans have been ahead of us for years. Yes, when we went, obviously I live out here in LA. And, uh, Americans have been collecting this type of data and, of course, using AI for, for a long, long time. The nature of the sport is different in the sense that it's stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And almost everything is decided by data points. As you look at players who are more susceptible to injuries and what have you, when you're you collecting this data, are you finding... Um, bigger, bigger indicators of someone, maybe it's genetics, maybe it's uh, how their diet. Is there some particular standout data point that says this is the biggest contributing factor to soft tissue injuries or um, is it all, uh, is it all a, a, a soup and, we, and, and, and it comes out in the end? Well, yeah, it is a little bit of a soup, but obviously the main, the main kind of data is, is a GPS data. Um, uh, but you know the, the the data science behind this Phil is like all of these um, these kind of people with the algorithms. It's it's quite complex. Yeah. Um, 
and and you know uh, you you will be you know the great thing about Zone Seven now is got so many hours of of games uh, across clubs across players that it's quite easy for us to see patterns mm-hmm. uh, and and um, but you can't say well if it's this person that you know eats at eleven o'clock in the morning as opposed to nine they're they're more likely to do it it's it's a combination of factors you know think about it you know we we've also developed a product for for amateur uh, runners and and fitness um, uh, uh, practitioners with Garmin uh, and it's the same thing you know it's like whenever an amateur runner is is getting their jogging done in the morning we can tell them when the next day they should maybe take a break because mm. it's just it's the same and, and actually we've now applied it to the health workers around the world with the, the covid virus and uh, uh, we we are now in a couple of hospitals where we're we're analyzing uh, doctors and nurses to give uh, a reg, red flag system when they're getting too tired oh I think I think it really is exciting technology, and um, you know the results we are seeing from clubs when we go in and we say to them, we're picking out three or four of of injuries that ultimately happened. That if you'd had us, we would have given you a flag to say, stop that one. And, and they can't believe it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's great to see that on their face. Indeed, and and I want to talk to you, Roger, a bit more about the Pixelot technology because you know in Scotland and in the UK whether it be smaller Scottish clubs or smaller clubs in England at the lower echelons of the EFL or the National League when it comes to behind closed doors they say financially that can't work the talk of streaming games won't work for us it's too complicated but as you've rightly said with Pixelot that could potentially change everything for these clubs well you know let's break that down a little bit um Callum you know, what Pixelot does is we reduce the cost of covering the game. Mm. So we can cover the game for a relatively small cost. Whether you have got enough subscribers that want to see that game is a completely different kettle of fish. You know, so um, uh, you need to balance that because, you know, and I speak from experience here, you know, we can easily cover all the games, uh, but, you know, with that... uh, add additional revenue from streaming that maybe you would lose from those diehard fans like yourself who maybe would decide to just stay at home more than they normally do. So we are a technology that gives options, Callum, and smart rights holders and smart leagues should use them in some kind of like strategic marketing matrix. But I wouldn't say we're going to be the silver bullet that, that makes you realise that 42 professional clubs in Scotland is the right number. Um, I subscribe to a platform out here in the US called The Zone, which is a strictly streaming platform. Yeah. Um, they do a fantastic job, um, big boxing fan as well. They're into football as well, of course. Yeah, you know, I know them very well, big in Italy, yep. Yep, and they do a fantastic job out here and have made it affordable and some teeth and problems in the beginning, but now the stream is, is, is steady. The two biggest things, the issues that people have with streaming are A, the, the, the quality of the picture or sometimes the buffers, and of course, B, the piracy. Um, how have you addressed either of those issues with Pixelat and help to help clubs secure, to make sure that they're not having their, their stream hijacked by piracy? And uh, is there, is obviously with 5G, I would assume that's a big help in keeping this, the stream stable, but are those your two biggest impediments to growth? Um. It's a very good question. Um, no, the answer is no. Um, uh, since since you're you're very prepared, I'll 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 tell you really what Pixelot uh, works best with. Uh, Pixelot um, allows games to be covered that then can be sold for watch and bet. It's it's a betting product really. Right. So um, when you're in that um, game you have to be very good at latency. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there's too much of a delay and, and you can lose right. a lot of money right. if you're a bookmaker. Right. Um, but, but, you know, Phil, the, the way to think about this is, you know, um, it's never... First of all, zone do superb production. We, mm-hmm. we don't compete with zone. We are, uh, as I say, for second, third, fourth tier, college sports, uh, even high school sports play on in the States we've got, mm-hmm. um, where... People are just happy to see it. It's very good quality, but it's 
not yeah. what you 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 would put on your big okay. screen in your in your living room. It's more than enough to watch on a computer screen. The latency is good, uh, and you know it pays for itself through the betting revenues. And then you can build things on that, like sponsorship, right, and yeah. then a subscription model like I that I followed it in the EFL. In terms of technology and the revolution that's going to be coming in football when this is done, I'm not drawing your order into talking about Scottish football in particular here, but when you consider there's 42 clubs in Scotland professionally, 92 in England, how is that? Is that possibly sustainable long term? And is, is, in a sense, is that the way that maybe technology can, can maybe help some of these clubs become sustainable by analysing things that maybe years ago were out of reach for them? Uh, again, a very good question. Um, I could give you the, the easy answer. I can give you the long answer. Which one do you want, Callum? Give me the long answer. <laughs> right, okay. Um, the long answer is this. Uh, in Europe, uh, you put together in leagues, clubs that are not homogeneous. They're not the same type. So um, you've got Man United and you've got Brighton and Hove Albion. You've got Celtic and you've got Hamilton. Um, in other markets you end up at finding your level. So if you can't find it with your own geographical borders, you end up doing it cross-border. You know, what uh, world trade and the world of entertainment, the business of whatever you want to call it, doesn't get stopped at national borders the way it does in European football. So the answer is yes, all of these clubs could maybe survive, but they won't survive if they are still uh, chained to league structures that don't respect them, don't have time for them, and don't tell their story. Um, that would be my answer. Today, structures like Scotland being stuck where it is and clubs can't compete in England, and the same with Portugal and Spain and Benelux and France and Austria, Switzerland and Germany, it's just an absurdity. And the more and more that tech has allowed people to consume exactly what they want as opposed to giving them a bundle that they have to take it or leave it, the more that's become obvious. If I can give you a parallel and then I'll stop boring you, it's this. I came from the music industry and we did the same kind of bundling uh, vision where you sold an LP that had three hits and, and seven uh, tracks of filler and people bought the 10 songs because they wanted the three hits in the main uh, Spotify changed that forever. What is happening in sport now is exactly the same thing. People ultimately won't want to subscribe to the Premiership when they're seeing yep. games like Huddersfield and um, Brighton, as I say, don't want to pick in Brighton. Um, uh, and that's got to change. So it was going towards a Super League anyway. Um, and below that, there could be various versions of cross... Uh, cross-border leagues all have done intelligently in some kind of pyramid system. Um, we will never do what the Americans have done and, and, and eliminate um, promotion and relegation. I don't think we'll ever do that. But we need to allow ventilation to stop um, clubs dying within small markets like Scotland or Belgium. That was the long answer. <laughs> it's interesting you. to say that because we just had uh, Adrian Babington on uh, and we were talking about streaming and a la carte menus and streaming and how there's inevitability about this because just like you said, people are not want to buy monthly subscriptions whenever they only want to watch three or four games. They don't want to watch Norwich or Brighton or whatever. But one of the things I was looking at, um, there's tremendous appetite for in this country uh, for sport beyond the professional level. There's yeah. a lot of money, for example, in coaching youth coaching kids all the way up from under six all the way through under 18 there's there, there's a lot of money swimming about there there's a lot of colleges there's a lot of what they call club sports teams out here would love to be able to broadcast their games there's an appetite for that uh, is that also a target market for for someone like pixie lad and is that a, what would it cost for example i mean you may be reluctant to give me this but if a, if a club sports team out here said you know what we want to start broadcasting all our games um is it what, what is there a per game cost? Is it a package um, for you to cover it, not for what they get on the back end, but for you to cover it? Is, is that also a target market? And is it well, well, again, 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 if if 
very perceptive question. You know, uh, Pixelot, as I said, have already got a deal with the National Federation of State High Schools mm-hmm. in the States. Brilliant. You know, so we're already covering high school sport with Pixelot. Um, and, you know, that works because uh, you install Pixelot once and then there's no more on course. The, the, the robot, mm. if I can use that term, covers as many games as you want. And then it's smart, you know, like you can tag your own kids. You can uh, do compilations of them. You can post it onto your, your social media. I mean, the tech's very, very smart, and it's perfect for something like that. You know, and, and, and the, I would say, that the, as I say, that the company's called PlayOn in the States, and I would say the PlayOn Pixelot partnership is, is one of the most uh, forward-looking into uh, making grass sports um, more popular, grassroots sports more popular and, and, and economically sustainable. Um, so we're already doing that. It's probably the best example of it, Phil. That's class. Play, play on, it's called, if anybody's interested. Uh, the reason why I'm asking that, Tricom, is uh, my very close friend is the national director for AYSO. And I'm quite sure they would be interested in taking a look at something like that. Of course, he is, that's Robbie Earl, uh, ex Wimbledon player. So, uh, Maybe something you want to look at. Yeah, def- definitely. I'd love to do that. Um, yeah, uh, Pixelot is um, is getting more and more popular all the time uh, as sport kind of like polarizes between um, events that want to cover uh, uh, games with 20 cameras plus and with all the bells and whistles and all the data and all the overlays and the AR and, and games that are more... Uh, recreational or grassroots or family-based or community-based. And as I say to you, the problem that we need to get through here is today we lump these two categories of sport together and and we should just recognize that they're both worthy and they're both should be respected and they can only live if they're separated. The last question I've got for you, Robert, uh, Roger, why we've got you here. You've recently talked about in your own podcast about equity partners like CBC buying a substantial stake in leagues like Serie A and across Europe. What's your yeah. thoughts on that? Um, well, as I say, it was probably going to be in the air anyway as, as things like the Super League were, were being considered. There was a lot of private equity companies together with FIFA, in fact, that were looking at financing you know, a world club competition and all that kind of stuff that Infantino was talking about. And, and now the virus has hit and there's a huge financial hole in all the sport. You know, I read the other day that um, NCAA in the States has, has got a hole of $4 billion. Mm. You know, th- th- these, are, these are huge, huge amounts of money. Yeah. So um, somebody has to come in and, 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 and fill that hole and buy the sport some time to get back on its feet and to find a new model. And, and the obvious people to do that are, are the private equity boys, the big financiers, um, the Blackstones, the CVCs, the Apollos, things like that. The issue, Callum, is going to be this one. These people don't put up with any nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, they won't put up with football's rubbish governance, the kind of stuff that um, Phil used to talk about that went on yeah. in CONCACAF and things like that and all these, you know, deals and... Uh, private equity is very hard-nosed, very data-driven. And, you know, if, if you take it back to the UK, you know, they will go into Scotland or England and they'll say, hmm, let me understand, you know, we've got the EPL, we've got the EFL, and we've got the English FA. And why do we need three? You know, in America, you've got one commissioner. We want one person to talk to. We're putting our money in. We want somebody that we can hold to the fire. Um, and, and, and that's the challenge. This money is there. There's deals ready to get done. But European sport needs to really sort out its governance. It's a really, really interesting angle. Roger, I must say, it's an absolute pleasure to have you my on, man. And I really would love to get you back because I have so many things running through my head <laughs> that I could, I could talk to you about all day. At, uh, let's connect after we do this show because uh, I have some things that I'd love to talk to you about. Sure, sure. Oh, by the way, um, uh, he's got no problem. Um, Phil Jones is an investor in Zone 7. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he... Um, I really like Phil, uh, and uh, you know it's, it's it's nothing to do with his own uh, uh, injury problems. He's just mm-hmm. a smart lad, 
And, you know, I think Zone 7 is going to make a lot of money for all the investors. So very happy to connect afterwards, Phil. Fantastic. Yeah, I've had Phil on the show, an absolute gentleman. So uh, He's a lovely man. He really is. Roger, I knew yourself. Thanks for coming on and being so generous with your time and opening our minds. To, uh, I appreciate it. My Quite pleasure. And Thank before you, you go, much. Roger, yeah. um, how can our listeners follow your podcast and how can they follow you on Twitter as well? Uh, okay, my podcast is, uh, you can find it on Twitter at entertained R, that's the word R, not, not the, the letter, entertained R, and, and you can find it on Podbean and um, iTunes, and you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in Lake Como. We're to have some of those fantastic guests on the show today, Calm, of course. Um, we had Adrian Bavington on earlier covering some very important topics about the financial ramifications, of course, of this coronavirus restarting football. And of course, what it will mean for clubs lower down the, the totem pole, outside of the Premier League, and even clubs inside the Premier League. Of course, he quite rightly highlights, yes, the top, the top clubs generate a lot of revenue, but the icons are absolutely huge too. Um, we're hoping that women's football isn't one of the casualties here because I'm a father to two daughters. Um, I think it's imperative girls have the same, can have and live the same dream as men, as boys can, have the same dream of becoming a professional footballer they've never really had our professional women's sport to support and believe in and be raised in so men's sports of course have a massive advantage they are people say well women don't go to women's sports well to be fair you know there hasn't really been a professional women's sport promoted to the same degree where they're immersed in it uh, and caught up in it and and the promotional side of it is really really important because you know, when we see any Premier League game, for example, the hype is massive. The hype, everything that's built up around it is really, really important in selling the event and it becoming, you know, defining the event in many ways. Uh, women's sports haven't had that, so it's important that we can get a generation of girls and women and men, for that matter, raised with women's sports getting parity in terms of promotion, everything else, and it's not suffered. It's not one of the first casualties. Um, I hope that that doesn't happen. And I hope that the clubs outside the Premier League are supported financially and recognise that they are an absolutely vital cog in the wheel of, of, of football. I totally agree. And I can give you a perspective on women's football from Scotland in the sense that I recently interviewed Laura Montgomery, who founded mm-hmm. the most successful women's team over here called Glasgow City. They regularly play in the Champions League and they've got to the quarterfinals twice mm-hmm. in the last five years. Um, basically she founded that club because she was at university and frustrated that there wasn't an avenue for young girls like her at that age to play. Now, one of the interesting things that she highlighted and Adrian did as well was Celtic and Rangers didn't have women's teams at that time and they approached her. Well, I shouldn't say they approached her. Certain big clubs potentially approached Mm her. Um, I can't categorically say Celtic Rangers and basically said, can we buy you out and put our branding on you? so that they could just piggyback off the back of it, which she refused. She's very mm-hmm. forthright about that. Um, but subsequently, the major clubs in Scotland have invested. Um, obviously, in England, Manchester United uh, finally got a, a female team in the yes. last couple of years, got promoted in the first season. Superb job by, by Casey Stoney. And I, and I hope that continues because the, the Women's World Cup was phenomenal. And one thing I have to give credit to in the US is your female national team gets credit in the sense that when you talk about your male national team, you make it clear that it's the United States men's national team. There's a clear distinction there in the sense that in the UK, we don't really have that as such. And at times, and over the years, it could at, t- at times come across as rather patronising when it came to the female side. Well, the thing about football out here is it's not immersed in American culture, so it's quite flexible in terms of its perception. So it's not perceived as a male-only game and where women receive ridicule for playing it. Um, they are supported. It's so because it's not, it's still working its way into mainstream America. It's still working its way into being a mainstream sport here. The, the, the perception of football is still quite flexible. So women are included in that, in that perception. And... As we've seen here recently in the U.S., where there's, and I'm not particularly educated on the topic, so I, I, I can't uh, elaborate on it too much. But there was a, a fight between the USSF, United States Soccer Federation, and the women's soccer team about getting financial parity. Uh, I don't really know the ins and outs of it. I just know that 
anybody, everybody deserves financial parity, you know, in terms of the percentage of revenue that you're getting for generation and make sure they're given equal promotion, all these things. I think um, that's very, very important. Really, we should not be defining anything along gender lines um, about importance of sport. Women are human beings too. They, you know, if we go to a Premier League ground on a Saturday or any, any football game for that matter, you'll see a healthy, a healthy percentage of women there. And, you know, one of the really awful things, Callum, that we need to eradicate from football is if you're a woman on social media and you happen to like football, you are going to face abuse on a level that a man never will. If you Absolutely. express an opinion, football, a sport by its nature, is polemic. But if you express an opinion, especially if you're a woman and, and someone disagrees with it, then stand back for some uh, a barrage of misogynistic abuse, usually by men who couldn't scratch their arse and don't know their arse from their elbow with football. No, absolutely. And can I just come in there? Because yeah, go ahead. another thing that frustrates me greatly, and, and it's happened in the UK. Now, I don't know if it happens in the US. You can, you can enlighten me with this. Recently, in the last sort of few years, for the first time, there was a female commentator on our flagship highlight mm-hmm. show, Match of the Day. And see the abuse the commentator got. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. You don't know anything about the mm-hmm. game. You're only mm-hmm. on here for tokenism. Mm-hmm. And then with a former Chelsea player who I won't name because he works at a famous radio organisation in the UK and I don't want to throw him under the bus, he went on mm-hmm. to national television and said it's too high-pitched to listen to. Yeah, and I just listen. think, ridiculous. These attitudes belong to a generation that uh, they're so archaic and we need to leave them behind. I mean, I often wonder, do these men not have daughters? I mean, what would they say to their own children? I've got two girls, I've got two boys, and I would never want to sit my two girls down and say, do you know what, you can't have the same dream as your brothers um, because of the fact you're a female. Um, I think when you sit, when you actually say that, it just seems so absurd. So I hope that the women's game is continued to be invested in. And when you look at untapped potential, there's tremendous untapped potential. I know men like to ridicule it for um, the level or whatever it is, but shouldn't be compared to men's sports, all right? And if you need an example, in my opinion, of how women's sports can exist in its own right and be extremely successful, you need only look at MMA. When we look at Ronda Rousey, we look at, a lot of the amazing female MMA fighters that are given Amanda Nunez all given amazing respect, right? For being warriors, for being incredible fighters, for and in the most masculine sport of all, they're given tremendous respect and bring tremendous revenue to the UFC. If we if if UFC fans can do it, football fans can do it. And so women's sports should not be compared to men. They exist in their own right. And uh, you know, personally. If you go back a hundred years to when football started, you know, we had seven one games or eight one games. We had, you know, shite goalkeeping. We had all these things that um, that eventually improved over time. So for me, uh, hopefully we see a thriving female sport. We see thriving um, women's football. And then, of course, some of the other things that we discussed, Callum, it was quite interesting about this, the uh, disbursement of funds, which is going to be really interesting because... Um, lower league clubs are going to have to be financially supported. We also covered a bit about the Bundesliga as well, which is quite interesting. And then we have this fantastic interview with Roger, who came in to talk about AI and football, Pixie Lot, which is fascinating and really, really important for lower league level football, for, 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 for all sports where it doesn't get coverage where you would like to watch it. And I think there's a tremendous appetite for, for, for to watch lower level sport. Um, because it doesn't get covered, and especially like out here where clubs would heavily invest in that type of technology. Um, Roger, extremely intelligent individual. Uh, brilliant to have him on. Absolutely. Superb to have Roger on. And one of the interesting things about Roger is he's always been an innovator. Um, mm-hmm. In Scotland, um, he proposed a proponent called SPL TV, which was basically... Mm-hmm. Basically, I saw the streaming platform, like Amazon and Netflix, uh, is well before its time. In Scotland, the media weren't as went forward thinking. Some would argue they still aren't, the majority of them. Um, and that never really got going. It was criticised and sort of laughed out of town. Whereas 
with hindsight, you think he was just so far ahead of his time with that, and yep. that could have really transformed the Scottish game in so many ways. And another thing that he mentioned was the relationship he's got in Zone 7, zone seven have with Getafe in Spain. Mm-hmm. Since they worked together and they teamed up, Getafe only had eight injuries last season. Can, yep. I mean, can, could you picture United, Chelsea, <laughs> Liverpool only having eight injuries over the course of a season? I mean, managers like Ole and Jurgen Klopp, I know he's been very successful, Guardiola, they would they would absolutely be desperate to only have eight injuries because if you've got the bulk of your squad able to play on a weekly basis, it can only benefit the club. As, as, and I mean, they're sitting fifth this season. I mean, mm. that just goes to show you the incredible progress in the limited budget if you've got the resources of players playing uh-huh. regularly. And it's, it is really interesting because if you look throughout football, these types of injuries seem to follow certain managers and certain clubs. I remember Arsenal used to have a horrendous problem with this under Wenger. Lots and lots and lots of uh, soft tissue injuries. And it's something that's haunted United from Ferguson. Always got... I remember Ferguson talking about this with Barcelona because Barcelona would always have a really thin squad but never seemed to pick up these types of injuries. And he was asked about this, and he was saying you could never do this in the Premier League with the intensity. You would need to have a much bigger squad. We would never get away with having those few injuries. So if there are some predictive factors that we can look at that can, can help us, to, can help clubs know, not, I mean, can help clubs reduce the probability that these injuries will happen, then that is an absolutely crucial, valuable tool because we all hate to see whenever Somebody comes on 10, 15 minutes into a game, pull a hamstring, because not only are you losing them for that game, you know you're losing them for about four or five after that. No, absolutely. You're spot on. And keeping players fit is something that, as we've just talked about and Roger emphasised, is vital because the more of your elite talents you've got, the better chance you've got of success. And I just want to finish the show today by saying, I don't know if you've had the chance to watch it yet. Today I went for my... Second one to watch, and I picked Aaron Hickey from Scotland. I saw that you had picked yours. I did hear that Martin's still struggling to pick his and that he's considering Billy Eilish. Taylor Swift or Billy Eilish? I can't remember which one. <laughs> but, uh, we shall see which one Martin picks out. I ribbed him a little bit this morning. Of course, I went with Sandro Tonali. I never get it wrong. I'm on their pad here. Uh, absolutely fantastic young talent. And uh, we will be back with more of those. Don't forget, as we said on the other show, so much more coming up on BTP this week. And once again, thank you so much to all our guests and thank you to my co-host here, Callum. Thank you very much, Phil. It's been a pleasure. And please continue to follow BTP, the United Show, the Global Football Show, and so much more. We'll continue to be on Twitter, be on your favourite podcast platform. Please subscribe today. Thanks, folks.